All right, we're continuing our series this morning on human limitedness, that is on learning to not only accept, but to love and to embrace the limits that God has given us as human beings. And this morning, we're considering the topic of time. What does it mean that humans live within time, that we're constrained by time, that we have a limited amount of time on this earth? And this week, as I was researching for this sermon, as I was preparing to talk about the topic of time, I went down a bunch of different rabbit holes about time and things like the difference between the way that physicists define time versus philosophers, how they define time, how atomic clocks work and how we use atomic clocks to keep time synchronized around the globe. I wanted to craft an interesting sermon introduction. And then I remembered that this morning we would actually be running sort of an experiment on time and relativity, right? Because we don't have childcare, right? So how long does a 25-minute sermon feel on New Year's Day when there's no childcare at the church? All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm scrapping the really elaborate and interesting introduction that I had created. You'll just have to believe me that it was really, really good, right? And I'm just gonna tell you my thesis outright right here at the beginning, okay? Here it is. Many of our day-to-day troubles, our regrets, our anxieties, our distractedness, has to do with a misunderstanding of our relationship to time as human beings. We try to control time or ignore time, or we we try to inhabit multiple moments in time simultaneously. But healing and hope are found in a biblical understanding of our relationship to time. Okay, that's, that's our goal this morning, that in understanding, in resolving what God has to tell us about our relationship to time as limited human beings that he created, that we'll find healing and rest and hope to inhabit time better. Okay, so let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Lord, we thank you for your word and we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us through your word in such a way that we're encouraged, that we're reminded of what's true, that we're drawn closer to you and to one another, Uh, Lord, and that our lives are transformed for your glory, for the love and the blessing of others, and for our own good and joy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the first component to the Bible's theory of time, the Bible's theology of time, is that God is eternal. The Bible tells us that God, the creator, the first cause, the source and the center of all things is eternal. And you've heard that word before, okay, but what does that mean? It means that God exists before, if we can even use words like before, he exists outside of and above and beyond time. He is the maker and the master of time itself. And so in Revelation 1.8, he says, I am the alpha and the omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Before the beginning of time, God is there. And beyond the furthest future time that we can imagine, God is there. Psalm 90 verse two says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The Himalayas are like newborn babies to God. From everlasting ago until everlasting ahead, God is. Now, 
Most of the time, when the Bible tries to explain that God is eternal to us, it uses temporal language. It uses time-based words for time-based people. And this is actually a really important general principle to understand as you read the Bible on your own. Sometimes when the Bible touches on something transcendent, it will intentionally oversimplify to try to help us understand, okay? Because the Bible is a book written out of love for finite, fallen human beings, sometimes it will set aside complexity in the interest of accessibility, in the interest of relationship, in the interest of friendship with God. And so as it pertains to the topic of God's relationship to time, usually the Bible just says he was around a long, long, long time ago, and he will still be around a long, long, long time from now. And that's true, but that's not the whole truth. The eternity of God means that he exists and operates across all of time, but that's not all that it means. And probably the best verse to help us think more deeply about this is 2 Peter 3.8, the first verse in your bulletin there. 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So it's not only that God existed a very long time ago, it's that he exists outside of and apart from time in such a way that he can hold a single day as if it were a millennium and pass through a millennium as if it were a single day. If you do the math there, that actually means that God can inhabit and orchestrate every second of this day as if it were four days long and he can pass through decades as if they were 15-minute time blocks, and he can do both of those things simultaneously. So it's right to say that God is eternal, but it might be more accurate to say that eternity is an attribute of God's being and his perfection. He exists above and beyond time and is not beholden to it or constrained by it in any way. Okay, here's how one theologian tried to explain this. God's eternity, listen up kids, this is Herman Bavink, right? Every, every child should know a little bit of Bavink, right? Um, God's eternity is qualitative, not merely quantitatively an infinite extension of time. God's eternity entails his fullness of being present and imminent in every moment of time, but there can be no time in God. From eternity to eternity, he is who he is. He is not a process of becoming, but an eternal being. He is without beginning or end, but also knows no earlier or later. He cannot be subjected to measuring or counting in his duration. He is the eternal I am. God's eternity, accordingly, should be thought of as an eternal present without past or future. To God, all things are present. Now, does that make your head swim? Or does that freak you out? a little bit? I hope that it does. Okay, why belabor this point? Okay, this is not something that we can comprehend what it's like for God to exist outside of time, to be truly eternal. So why is it worth thinking about and trying to think deeply about? Well, at least two reasons. For one, any time that we think about or meditate on one of God's attributes, but maybe especially when we think about his eternity, it should inspire awe in us and cause us to worship him. 
We just sang none above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. Right? I take him so lightly, but the God that we're talking about here wears eternity on his wrist like it's a little wristwatch. Right? He can read history from beginning to end like a short story. He walks back and forth across time however he wills like it's one of those glass sidewalks. Meditating on God's eternity should stun us and maybe even scare us a little bit, and it should inspire us to worship him. But second, and somewhat paradoxically, the eternity of God, his presence and power across every moment of time, including every moment of your life, should also comfort you. This is a truth that should comfort us. Look at the idea that Peter immediately links to God's eternity there in 2 Peter 3. He says, what the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see that the eternity of God combined with the mercy of God translates to the infinite patience of God. He works wisely and intentionally in seconds and in centuries never too slowly, never too quickly. And his goal is to lead many people to repentance and relationship and eternal life with him. Or think of that famous promise in Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, to those called according to his purpose. The only way that that promise can be true is if we worship an eternal God who knows the beginning and the end and every moment in between and is working purposefully for our good in each moment. Right, hold that thought. We're going to come back to that at the end. Okay? So the first piece of the Bible's theology of time is God is eternal. The second is humans are temporal. The temporality of humanity. Unlike God, we exist within and are subject to time. And Psalm 90 is one of the best passages to help us think about our temporality. But look at what verse 10 says of Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. One implication of human temporality is, one day you are going to die. One day, sooner than you think, it will be here more quickly than you think, you are going to die. And we've made some small advances since Moses wrote this psalm about 4,000 years ago. So maybe you get 90 or 100 years if you're especially healthy. Elsewhere in Scripture, our lifespan is compared to a mist or a sigh or a dandelion. In the scope of human history, much less in the scope of cosmic time, much, much less in the face of God's eternity, that's your life. And the Bible actually has the audacity to say that it is good for us to remember that regularly. Right. Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Or to paraphrase Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, you get more wisdom at a funeral than at a festival. Most of us do everything we can to forget it, but remembering that you have a finite number of days on this earth and that before too long, you're going to die, that is one of the cornerstones of true wisdom. 
numbering our days reminds us that we are not as permanent or as powerful as we think that we are. Numbering our days causes us to ask the right questions, questions like, what really matters? If I only have 70, 80, 90 years, am I spending my time on things that truly matter, on the things that I want to be spending my time on? Too many people wait to ask these questions until they're on their deathbed. The Bible says that wisdom is found in thinking deathbed thoughts early. I think there's an even more important question we should ask. It's one of my favorite questions to ask. Why? Why death? Okay, here is the weird thing about death. With a few possible exceptions, every human being who has ever lived has died, and yet every time that it happens, we feel like it shouldn't have happened. I wonder if you were honest enough a moment ago when I said one day you're going to die to think honestly, but I don't want to die. And that's exactly what you should think. Right? That's what you are meant to think because death is an anomaly. Death was not part of God's original design for humanity. Maybe you notice, we're not going to skip the hard verses of Psalm 90 there. Maybe you notice kind of the, the odd and initially upsetting verses, Psalm 90, verses 9 and 11. They say, all of our days pass away under your wrath. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, what do those verses mean? They're hinting at the reality that death is the just and proper consequence of sin. The wages of sin, the deserved payout for sin is this thing that we call death. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that doesn't mean that every individual person dies because of particular sins that they have committed or that good people live longer and bad people die young. Okay, we know that that's not true. What those verses mean is that the anomaly, the imposter, death, is the result of humanity's rejection of the God of eternal life. In their first sin, Adam and Eve essentially said, we will find life, we will taste eternity on our own terms apart from God, but all that they found was death. And every sin since then is basically a reiteration of that rebellion, to be the master of my numbered days to be independent, autonomous, unaccountable, and still expect to find life in the end. And that only ever leads to death. The fuller picture of the Bible's explanation of human temporality is that one day you're going to die and after death comes something else, an unending existence. And because of sin, Death would have meant our unending separation from God, but the unexpected and astonishing event at the center of history is that God did something to turn death into a doorway into new life. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, God reunited divine eternity and human temporality so that we could have life, eternal, infinite life with him forever. One of my favorite stories of Jesus, this is such an awesome story, is at the end of John chapter 8. Okay, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are arguing with Jesus and they're upset because he seems to be saying that he is able to save people even from death itself. And so in John 8, 52, they say to him, Abraham died as did all the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? 
And as Jesus starts to respond to them, okay, initially he responds gently. He tries to explain it to them. But as he starts to respond to them, he talks about Abraham as if he were a close acquaintance, as if he's a friend that Jesus knows. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. And so they say to him, you're not even 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And then Jesus, not wishing to upset them any further, right? (laughs) He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I mean, it's got to be one of the best mic drop moments in Jesus's earthly ministry, okay? Think, Think about the shocking statement that he's making there. Jesus was either a lunatic or he was who he says he was. He says, before Abraham was, past tense, I am. And they think... The Jews are so upset, they're so angry about what he said that they pick up stones because they want to kill him. Now think about the ridiculousness of that moment. Okay, they, they want to throw little stones at Jesus. The Himalayas are like newborn babies to him. He could have dropped a mountain on them without a second thought. And so the absolute scandal of history, the most astonishing thing that has ever happened is that the eternal God, the great I am, became a temporal human being to allow himself to be killed by the very people who were sinning against him. Eternity clothed in humanity so that a life of infinite worth could pay the penalty for sin in your place. He willingly let limited human beings crucify him so that we might be resurrected with him and find eternity in him. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Okay, now put all this together, okay? Run through this faith logic for yourself, okay? Do you believe this? The eternal God is unwavering, never fading or faltering in his infinite, glorious, eternal life, and you were made for relationship and adventure with him forever. Because of sin, because of our rejection of our limits and our dependence, we traded the life that we were meant to have with him forever for forever death, separated from him, but the eternal son of God came into the world as a temporal human being in order to reconcile us to God in mercy and love forever so that anyone who puts their faith in him, death is now only a useful reminder of our temporality and ultimately a doorway into eternal life. All right, let's conclude with the application, the healing, the hope that I talked about at the beginning, okay? If you remember, this series is supposed to be about original God-given limits of, of human beings, okay? So we just said that death is an unoriginal anomaly. It's not the way that God designed us to be, but there is an aspect of human temporality that we should also mention, and it's this. Unlike God, you can only inhabit one moment at a time. 
That was true before sin entered the equation, and that will be true in the new heaven and the new earth. Because eternality is not an attribute of your being like it is God's, you can only be in one moment at a time. You can't go back in time, and you can only progress forward in time one moment, one step at a time. And we get into all sorts of trouble when we forget that. A lot of our, our regrets, our shame, our anxiety, our distractedness, our busyness come from when we forget our place in time as limited, moment-by-moment moment human beings. But there's healing and there's rest when we embrace the truth about time. A proper understanding of God's eternity, of our temporality, and the Savior who bridged the gap, who reconciled us to eternal life with God helps us to reckon with our past, to hope for the future, and to be present in the present. Let me say that again. A biblical understanding of time and your place in it allows you to look at the past without shame, to look to the future without fear, and to be present to this moment in a way that honors God and loves other people. Okay, let's break that down. Often when we think about our past, when you think deeply about your past, about your story, often we are racked with serious regrets and deep shame about things that we did or things that we didn't do. And so we end up going back and reliving those moments over and over again and feeling that shame and regret all over again. Or we end up self-medicating in different ways, trying to forget about that shame and regret. But consider this. The eternal God who inhabits every moment of the past as if it were his present, including the lowest, darkest moments of your past, says in Jeremiah 31, 34, and then again in Hebrews 8, 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Is it, is it heretical to say that God is forgetful? He says it about himself. He intentionally forgets your sins because of Jesus. The eternal God inhabits every moment of your past, but because of Christ, he floods each and every moment with his mercy and his love. He forgives and he forgets. He forgets that you are a sinner. In other words, when he thinks about your past, he doesn't feel a single ounce of shame or disappointment or embarrassment, or disgust. He only views you with beaming pleasure and pride through Jesus. And so if you find yourself constantly reliving past mistakes, failures, or sins, have this conversation with the eternal God. Have this conversation with him out loud. Lord, I feel shame about my past, but your presence in my past is free from shame and overflowing with mercy and love. Help me to believe that. On the other hand, when we think about the future, we often feel deep worry and even anxiety about unknown worst-case scenarios. So if shame is dwelling on past sins and failures, then anxiety is dwelling in future fears and failures. I heard one pastor call anxiety focused meditation on imagined worst case scenarios. But consider this, the eternal God who inhabits every future moment as his present, including the most 
confusing and uncertain and precarious moments of your future, says in Deuteronomy 31.6 and then again in Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you or forsake you. And in Romans 8.28, he promises, I am working all things for your good. He is never caught off guard by the future. He's never surprised or confused. And one day you will look back on your story and see how he orchestrated every moment for your truest and highest good. Now, something we talk about here a lot at Hope, by the way, and this is important to say, is when you are in the midst of suffering, when you're experiencing real suffering, one of the most unhelpful things that people can do to you is say, hey, God's, God's going to work this out. Right? He's going to do something here so that at the end of the story, you understand that, that that is not helpful in the midst of suffering, but that is a real promise that the Bible gives that we are supposed to meditate on to prepare for suffering. Right? One day at the end of your story, when you stand in heaven with God and look back on your story, you will see that he orchestrated it in such a way that it could not have been more perfectly good for his glory and for your joy. That's a promise that the Bible gives you. And God is working in past, present, and future to bring that about. So when you feel yourself pre-living those future fears, have this conversation with the eternal God. Lord, I feel worry and anxiety about my future, but your presence in my future is certain and wise and strong and loving. Help me to believe that. I don't want to say any of this lightly, okay, because really reckoning with past regret and shame might entail opening up in a courageous way in your community group or in the counselor's office. That is, you might have to dig into it and be honest about it to find that healing and that freedom from regret that we're talking about here. Relief from anxiety and worry about the future might be a long battle that involves prayer, but also possibly medical intervention. I don't want to downplay the real thing that clinical anxiety is. Okay, but the point is, the only way for temporal humans to find true sustainable healing is in an ongoing conversation with the eternal God. Coping strategies aren't the same thing as healing. God wants to heal you in conversation with himself. And here's the amazing thing. As we begin to let go of the shame and regret of our past and to let go of the worry and the fear about our future, we will naturally start to live more holy in the present. To inhabit this one present moment faithfully and joyfully in the way that we're meant to. You can stop dwelling on the alleged disqualifications from your past because God has forgotten them and wiped them away. And you can stop worrying about self-preservation and self-promotion in the future because God is for your self-preservation. God is for your preservation and your promotion. And you can be present to the love that God is inviting you to live in at this moment. You can present yourself to God in simple, local faithfulness and present yourself to others in intimacy and love and self-giving. Because Jesus has bridged the gap between time and eternity, every little moment that is presented to him as an offering of love and obedience will be eternally meaningful and celebrated. There's a verse that Jesus says this in the book of Matthew. I don't have the reference, but this just comes to my mind right now. There's this great little verse where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who offers a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in my name will by no means lose his reward in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? That means that even the tiniest, most seemingly insignificant act 
that is presented to Jesus as an act of worship will be eternally significant. That there are saints in this church offering cups of water to little ones back there in childcare who are more eternally significant than the CEOs of banks and world leaders. Right? Because Jesus has connected each moment of our present to eternity by his mercy and his love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we confess that there are truths about you, like your eternity, that are too profound and enormous for us to grasp, but we pray that you would give us little tastes of the truth that strengthen us, that encourage us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that you are the God who holds time in his hands, the Lord of years. And would you help us to rest in that truth in such a way that we can be present to this moment, to love others, to pay attention to what you're doing. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.